Before we get started, guys, I just want to take a quick second to plug our website as I break my phone on the music stand here. Uh, if you go to CPF, that's cpf.me, uh, you can find all sorts of things about us. There's little staff biographies and a photo gallery and all of our events are there. And there's a link tree that's there now that'll put you to all of the different signups and put it all in one place. There's a reimbursement request and a benevolence request if you ever have a need. And uh, if you need to find anything out about Crosspoint, that's really the place to go uh, outside of maybe our Facebook page. But both of those, I feel like, are linked up pretty well these days. So just want to encourage you to go check out our website and, uh, you know, make that a, a bookmark, so to speak, on your browser there. Uh, but before we... Uh, I said, should say, um, after all that, not before, I, I did that after. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29 today. We're going to be talking specifically uh, about um, the disciples post-resurrection and the experience that they have with Jesus and the response that we as Christians should have with regards to faith, right? Now, there's an old saying, and it's been a saying as long as I have been alive, which is not super long, I know, but it's been around for a really long time that seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. But that certainly is not something that we could use to describe faith. Now, I don't know about uh, you, uh, but I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you can't really believe what you just witnessed, like you saw something happen, and you're like, how, how is that even possible? I'm not going to bore you with another sports example, but I feel like that happens to me all the time where I'm watching something. I'm like, clearly me and that gentleman are not in the same species because there's no way humanly possible I could do that without breaking my neck. Uh, I think of that a lot too when I watch like gymnastics in the Summer Olympics, right? And you, they're just everybody's flipping and flying and I'm like, yeah, that just looks painful. Uh, but all the time, I feel like we can come up with examples of where something happens in our life, we witness something and it's just so hard for us to wrap our heads around it. Now, I think for the disciples, this probably happened quite often, right? You would think that in their time with Jesus, really the three years they spent in ministry with him, that maybe, just maybe, they would have, I don't even want to use the word gotten used to it, but have almost come to expect Jesus doing the absolute miraculous, right? The mind-blowing, the thing that you just can't quite understand. Um, so I don't think that we would say that they were numb to it. I'm just saying that I think that they would get to the point where the things he accomplished are no longer outside of the realm of possibility. But with that being said, none of them expected him to raise from the dead. None of them really understood what he was telling them when he told them that he could destroy the temple and then within three days rebuild it. And so they weren't really uh, expecting that to ever take place. And for one of the disciples, Stephen, it was a step too far. It was a step too far. Uh, but before we get to Stephen, let's look at the response of the other disciples. Now, in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, it says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now, we have a lot going on in this short five verses, and it's both powerful and, quite frankly, poetic. Now, first, the disciples out of fear had moved underground. They have uh, kind of shifted to making sure that they're meeting at night. They're meeting behind locked doors. They're still fearful of Jewish leadership, who they saw kind of lead their, their Messiah, their leader, their Jesus to the cross, and they're expecting the same treatment. And so while they haven't completely gone to just dispersing away from one another, they have made sure that their meetings are taking place safely and securely and in secret, okay? Now, it's far from the open-armed approach that Jesus had instilled in them, and it's while they're behind these locked doors that Jesus appears to them. And it's important that they mention that the doors are locked because it gives us a clue about Jesus's new resurrection body, right? And the shift that has really taken place with Christ. Because before his death, he was both God and fully man. Well, after his resurrection, we are experiencing his godliness in like full force. And so the fact that the doors were locked tells us that Jesus in his new body, not to compare him to any type of other ghostly thing that we can think of, appears to be able to like walk through walls right? Or at least locked doors, magically appearing in a room that was otherwise secured. And so this gives us kind of a clue about the change that has taken place in the Christ, that he can walk through and get through these solid barriers. And it would appear that uh, at this point, like I said, he's no longer a common man and so much more the son of God. But there's also something very poetic happening here in this moment. And I think that this is what it teaches us, that no matter what barriers or obstacles we place in Jesus' way, he can still find his way into the center of our lives. No matter what barriers or obstacles we put in Jesus' way, he can still find his way into the center of our lives. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I can only speak from my own experience, and I am what I would like to call a wall builder. I put up walls, okay? It takes a lot for me to tear down those walls, it takes a lot for me to be vulnerable with people. It's something that over time I've gotten better at and I've had to just get comfortable with, especially being up here on the stage. But naturally, I'm a wall builder. I don't let people in. I handle things all on my own. I'm not really somebody who likes to talk things out. If there's an issue, it's my issue. It will never become your issue. That's what I am naturally. I'm that way with people. And I was very much so that way with God. But you see, it didn't matter what walls I put up. It didn't matter what barriers I put up. Jesus found his way into my center. He tore down those walls, not just went through them. He broke them down. And through this, and through what we see here in this passage, I think very quickly that we see the heart of Jesus because the moment he appears to them, which as you can imagine probably pretty fear stirring, right? Like if you're just there and you witness this guy die on a cross and you are beyond downtrodden, your whole life is in shambles, you left everything behind to follow this person, you're three years into this new life and then you see his body crushed on a cross, you're kind of thinking, my life's over. What do I do now? I guess I'll go back to 
catching fish. I guess I'll go back to my trade. I guess I'll go back to collecting taxes. I mean, I I don't know those thoughts, but I, I can imagine that fear was certainly at the center of their lives in this moment. And so it's in this time where they're locked in this room together and probably wondering about what's next. And Jesus just is there. It's in the midst of chaos that he's here to bring peace. Okay. And he said to them, peace be with you. Now, it's really easy to read this passage and think of it as just a common greeting, right? Like, hey, how's it going? Or aloha, I'm Jesus, right? It's, it's not, it, this is so much more than Jesus just being like, well, I got to break the ice somehow, so I guess I'll hit him with a peace be with you, right? No, he is, he is calming the stormy seas in this moment. He is telling the wind and the waves in their lives to hush, and the wind and the waves are bowing. You see, when Christ tells us that he will bring us peace, he isn't necessarily saying that he will change the circumstances. He didn't unlock the door and turn the night to day and instantly return them back to their previous standing. No, in that moment, in the midst of their struggle and their trials and their tribulations, he instilled within them peace. He was granting them peace. He was ensuring that they could be still. This is John 14, 27 type of peace where he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is confidence. This is power. This is restoration. This is the peace that comes from the Messiah. This is so much more than Jesus wishing them to be okay. This is Jesus making them okay. Their lives shattered, their future gone, all restored with a simple word, peace, peace. And as he offers this greeting to them, he shows them his hands and his side, and there's an immediate shift. There's an immediate shift because I'm thinking, right, there's a purpose to everything Jesus does. Jesus isn't just like, hey, today I think I'll show my hands and my side, right? Like, uh, don't know, feeling frisky, might get crucified, right? There's, there's never that moment in Jesus' life. Everything is measured. Everything is important. Everything is well thought out. And so I'm imagining that as he appears to them and he offers this greeting of peace to them and it's starting to kind of like resonate within them, they're still like, okay, who's offering us this peace? And I'm assuming that with this new body, he's looking a little different than maybe Jesus normally would. Like maybe there's a touch by an angel glow. I don't know. Like, you know, they walk in and it's just, ha, like it's there. And they're like, oh, okay, uh, thanks. We like peace. And he's like, look, here's my hands. And hey, here's my side. And they're like, oh, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And the moment that they realize that it's Jesus, everything changes. They're overjoyed. Overjoyed. You know what that means? That means more than joy. They're like above the joy. They're over the joy. Crazy how the language works. Everything for them in that moment changes from unbearable sadness and fear to pure joy. This 
was the gift of Christ to all who were present in that moment. Now, unfortunately for Thomas, Thomas wasn't with the group at this time. I don't know why. I don't know if it ever says why. He had some other obligations. He just missed the meeting this night, right? So he's not in the room. So he doesn't experience Jesus, but he gets to experience the people who experienced Jesus. And they have that, like, I just met Jesus glow about them. You know what I mean? We all have been there. Like, we've all experienced that ourselves when we first experience salvation, when you first come to this realization that Jesus is Jesus and he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he can forgive our sins, he can offer us uh, just this amazing amount of grace, and we kind of walk around for you know, however many days, sometimes months, maybe even it lasted a couple years for you where we just feel kind of like we're floating, right? Like that I'm, I'm walking on sunshine, I just met Jesus moment. And that's what they are experiencing. And so they do what we naturally do when we really understand and experience this grace. They go and they start to like circle up the troops and tell them about what they experienced. And so as the passage continues, John 20, 24 through 29, it says, well, I'm going to read 24 and 25 first. It says, now Thomas, also called Didymus, was one of the 12, and he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. See, I told you. And it says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Now, it has this little exclamation point. I don't know if that's just an English thing or if that's like what's there in the Greek. And I could have studied that for you this morning, but I didn't think about it until now. And so, sorry. But there's an exclamation point, which means that they are excited about it. We have seen the Lord. And then there's Thomas. And Thomas in this moment is a little bit, uh, if I had to put like something around him that we would recognize, I think he's a little bit like Eeyore. Where they're like, we have seen the Lord. And he's like, well, I haven't, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I see his hands and I see. So, and so he says, he says to them, Hey, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, which sounds kind of gross to me, uh, and put my hand into his side. Also pretty gross. I'm not going to believe. Right? So like, he doesn't just want to see Jesus. He doesn't just want to see where he was nailed to the cross. He doesn't want to just see where his side was pierced. Like he wants to make sure this isn't somebody dressing up like Jesus. He wants to know that it's Jesus. So he's not only got to see the wounds, but he's got to touch them. Yeah. Thomas got problems, right? He nasty, as some of my students would say. <laughs> like he's, he's got to know and have the proof. He's got to know and have the proof. And so here they approach Thomas with this, I've just met Jesus glow, and, and I, at least I'm assuming they had this glow about them, and they were excited, they were energized, they have just received the Spirit, they have just been recommissioned by the Lord, and the first person they come across is Thomas, somebody who has been with them, somebody who should recognize that Christ kind of exists outside of the realm of what's possible, And he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. Now, thank goodness that the power of Christ can take us beyond the unbelief of others because if they had been more fragile in that moment, that might have ruined it for everybody. Who knows what happens to the church if faithless Thomas is allowed to kind of knock them off course for the rest of their future. So Thomas is a little bit of a Debbie Downer, 
Then he says, hey, unless I see him, unless I touch him, I will not believe. And while we can stand here in this day and age and read this story and say, oh, Thomas, you silly goose. It's really not that unreasonable, right? Really? I mean, I already talked to you about one weakness. I'm kind of a wall builder. I'm also, um, at times, maybe a little bit too logical for my own good. You see, I'm a, I'm a I have to see it to believe it type, right? And a lot of us are, and I understand that. Somebody say something to you, and like my first thought is like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll see, right? We'll, we'll see, uh, you know? So I read this story and I see the faults of Thomas and I'm like, Thomas, how could you? And then I also completely understand Thomas's need to see in order to believe. Thomas struggled with faith because he determined that the burden of proof had not been met. He couldn't trust his brothers and sisters in Christ. And it wasn't until Jesus appeared to the disciples a second time and he, he challenged Thomas that we see him lay down that unbelief. It starts in verse 26. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, still locking those doors, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Everything's almost identical to the previous meeting. But then he comes directly to Thomas. We're not told there's any other reaction. Jesus knows. And so he looks at Thomas and he said, put your finger here. See my hands? Thomas said to him, or sorry, said, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Again, gross. But that's what Thomas needed. So then he says, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Thomas struggled when the burden of proof hadn't been met. But then Jesus met it and everything changes for him. Now, I find something interesting about this decision. First, the not interesting part, Thomas made the right choice, right? He experiences Jesus and he believed. But Jesus kind of hits him with this truth bomb where he says, you see, it's easy to believe when the results are tangible. It's easy to believe when the results are tangible. It's easy to believe when you can see it. It's easy to believe when you can touch it. It's easy to believe when you can experience it with all of your senses. That's when it's easy to believe. That is belief, but it is not faith. And we cannot equate one for the other. When we can see the results and we can feel the results and we can touch the results, we can believe, but that takes very little faith. But real faith expresses belief in that which the Spirit leads us to know is true. Real faith doesn't require all of the sensible proof. And that's what we are called and required as believers to have. And yet while that's the case, I notice in this passage that Jesus 
didn't toss Thomas away. He didn't say, Thomas, you didn't believe, so depart from my midst. Thomas, you didn't believe, so you're no longer in this group. No, he saw Thomas's struggle and he walked Thomas through them. And he brought Thomas back into the group. Now, if we're to believe Jesus' words, Thomas missed out on a blessing. Thomas missed out on a blessing. And I don't know that I can tell you what that blessing necessarily was or is. But if we are to believe Scripture, and I believe Scripture, faith comes with blessing. And I have to tell you that while I personally right now in this moment would love to see Jesus, I would love to touch Jesus. Not like inside a wound or anything, but just like, (laughs) hey, hold my hand, Jesus. I would love to be with Jesus. I can tell you that I have experienced a blessing that those who have had that opportunity have missed out on. I stand before you this morning, a believer of the gospel, a believer of the gospel, having not seen the one who secures his benefits. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean that I haven't experienced Jesus. It doesn't mean that I haven't felt Jesus or seen Jesus move in my life. It doesn't mean that Jesus has never called out to me or that I somehow have not had as real an experience. Because I stand before you now, right now, in this moment today, and I tell you that Jesus is alive. Jesus is moving. Jesus is active. And while it is important that we have faith and choose that belief. I also know that if you're struggling and if you ask, Jesus will reveal himself to you. Don't ask if you don't want to receive. Don't ask if you're unwilling to give Jesus the credit. But if you want to know If Jesus is alive and well, he'll give you that burden of proof. He will make it known to you. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now in this moment and I thank you for this day and I thank you, God, for who you are. And Lord, as we have studied the disciples, we've learned so much about them, but we've learned so much more about you and your character and your love for us and your patience with us. God, you are a God who is alive and well and moving and continuing to have impact in this world. But God, it takes so much more than belief. It takes faith. Faith. Knowing that the things that we can't see are real. Knowing that the things that we can't sense are real. 
you are God. And you love us, you died for us, you rose for us. God, if there's anyone out there this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, that can't sit here this morning and say, I have faith. I believe in that which I have not seen. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I believe that God sent him to this world to be our example, to die for our sins, to bring about forgiveness and grace and peace that we would not otherwise have. God, I pray that you would make it known to them that you would remove any doubt that they may have in this time. That you would help them to be still and to know that you are God and you are very real. I ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If today God is calling out to you and he's telling you that now's the time, now's the time to commit yourself to that relationship. Now's your time to turn over the reins. Now's your time to make him your Lord and Savior and you haven't done that. This is the moment to get that done. This is the time to have that conversation. If you need prayer, if you are struggling right now in life, if you are are just unable right now to, to get through life alone, here's the good thing. You're not expected to. You're not expected to. You don't have to. Not only is God by your side, but you can be surrounded by a family of believers who will love and pray for you. If you need prayer, come pray with me. Come pray with me. If you're more comfortable going directly to God, that's another great thing about our God. You don't have to come to me. You can go straight to him. I would challenge you to come up, use our stage as an altar, be an encouragement to your fellow believers this morning. Let's stand right now, let's worship, let's give God our full attention, and let's be willing to move our feet if he's calling us to do so.